we are concluding our series on Galatians, Paul's letter to the folks in Galatia, which is kind of middle Turkey or southern Turkey, depending on the scholar, uh, around Ephesus. And we conclude our series today as we get to uh, the sixth chapter of Galatians. Let's share in God's good word together. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. All must test their own work, then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own loads. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. chapters of the 66 book Bible changed the world. If it weren't for these six chapters in Galatia, we wouldn't be here today. We would be something else. We would be a sect within Judaism. But Paul comes and says that Jesus has made all things new, all things new. And now we have freedom, freedom to live differently, freedom um, more even than John the Baptist, because he was before the resurrection. So we now come to this time, and what are you going to do with that freedom? And how do you know if it's genuine? How do you know if someone is genuine? How do you know if someone says, I love you, whether that's genuine or not? How do you test that? Well, Paul is going to talk to the early church about how do you do that as community? It takes one another to help do this. So we come to the end of our series, Ancient Wisdom for Anxious Times, and today... What we're going to find is that you and I and all those that have gone before us, the whole goal of this is for you and I to be a blessing to the world. That's why we exist. That's why the church of Jesus Christ exists, to bless the world, to bring heaven to earth, to be a part of what Jesus is doing, to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance, and to actually do the transformation of the world. That is a tall order. Not done in our strength. We can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can do it in and through us. So, as a, as a way to catch us up, um, this is the series in a whole. Galatians 1, it's all about the unity of the church, says N.T. Wright. If you're not familiar with N.T. Wright, I highly recommend him. Um, I think he's one of the best living scholars in the New Testament today. And, and so Galatians, though, it was hard for that to be unified because um, these are the same folks that you're going to later find are the Gauls. Uh, they're going to be the Celts. Uh, these are the guys that you see in like big barbarian movies. And it can be very scary. And so in Greek, keltos, it actually means the other or stranger because they were strange. They were not like the Jews. They were not like the Romans. They were not like the Greeks. This was a very different group of people. And so they simply, the Greeks called them other, stranger. And so that, what do you do with a group of folks like that? So from Paul's writing in 50 AD, um, sometimes we'll use AD after Christ. um, Or sometimes we use CE, common era. Depends on what scholars we're using. We just follow them along. Um, you can use them interchangeably. Um, one is, C, anyway, C is sort of for my interreligious dialogue. Uh, and here we can use AD because it's, I'm assuming most of us are Christians, right? So that's, that's what we do. So from Paul's writing in 50 AD to today, the church then has had to wrestle with who's us and who's other? And how do you know? And is it genuine? 
So the biggest, most obvious problem facing any Jesus believer in the Roman world, particularly Galatians in this point, in this section, was that idols were everywhere. I mean, you, you couldn't go walk down the street without having an idol here, idol there. People had idols in their homes. They were everywhere, and worshiping them was compulsory. It was against the law not to worship Julius Caesar as a god, or Augustus Caesar as a god, or the gods that they worshipped as gods. For the sake of peace, though, the monotheistic Jews had been granted an exception because they only had one God and they were willing to die for their faith in ways that others were not. And so Rome was like, if this is going to work, if we're going to be able to occupy this area, we're going to have to give them a pass. And so that was really important. Everybody else did what Rome wanted. The Jews did most of what Rome wanted, paid taxes and all that, but they didn't have to worship their gods. So William Barclay, uh, who's one of my favorite theologians that's uh, much older, he says, those who wanted the Galatians to get themselves circumcised saw in circumcision a passport to safety should persecution arise to keep them safe from the hatred of the Jews and the law of Rome alike. And so you, you get this. The sign of being Jewish was circumcision. They don't have to worship the gods and everybody else does. Well, Now you have a new group of people that say they're a part of this new Jewish Christian movement, Jesus people movement. And Paul says you don't have to be circumcised. Well, how does that work? Because how is Rome supposed to know who is and isn't supposed to do the worship? And if they're not careful, everybody's going to get killed. Because they're going to think that they are not keeping up with their part of the bargain with Rome. Does it make sense? And so they're like, well, you have to do that because otherwise you're putting us in harm's way. And Paul says no. In Galatians 2, he says, God shows no partiality. Will you say that with me? God shows no partiality, even to those strange Galatians. Not at all. Michael Slaughter, um, who, who started uh, a, a huge church in Tip City, Ohio, um, writes it this way. He says, life in God is received, not achieved. Will you say that with me? Life in God is received, not achieved. Right, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, by God. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And so when it comes to grace, um, there are two things I want to share real quickly. One is I learned it as God's riches at Christ's expense, which is exactly right. You can't earn it. Um, This is what we would call justification. Uh, And then over here, this is what we would call more like sanctification. God's real action continuously everywhere. This is the power that we want to come and receive each and every week in communion to go out and change the world, to receive the power of Christ, to go out and to use that power for good. And it's now available to all, to everyone. To everyone. If you'll follow the Holy Spirit, that Spirit can come to you and you can go and do the good that God has for the world all along. Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he puts this really clear about what is now possible by the power of the Holy Spirit by his coming. Jesus says, I say to you, love your who? Enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father. I'm going to talk about that in just a second, what children of means. Children of your Father in heaven, for God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How many of you all got rain at your house today? Maybe you did. How many of your neighbors got rain today? Or did God skip your neighbors and only rained on your house? That's how it works. Because it's not about your goodness. It's about God's character. Isn't that true that God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike? Because God cares for the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He loves the righteous and unrighteous alike. He came and died for the righteous and unrighteous alike. So the words children of that Jesus uses here, it means persons who show the quality named or the character trait implied. So if we're 
children of the Father, we are to act like the Father. We are to be like the Father. We are to carry that character into the world. And, and, and likewise, in other sections, Jesus says, children of Satan. And that's, that's not complimentary, right? And it's the opposite of children of the Father. So when we get to Galatians 3, what we find is that the law, which was super important and carried Jesus all the way until his birth and resurrection, it was our babysitter. It was our disciplinarian, Paul says, until Christ came. And when Christ came, everything changes. Not just for Christians, but the entire world, the entire cosmos, for the, all the world. And that's why time's basically measured before and after that event. So what we find then in Galatians 4 is that with the freedom God has given us, we have a choice. You now have that power. Will you be a gatekeeper and keep people out, or will you be a lockpicker and set people free to help them do what you know they can do, to set them free into the world? And then last week we looked at Galatians 5. And Paul says that you are now free. What are you free from? Well, you're free from observing ritual behaviors as a path to righteousness. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to do the food laws. Um, All these things... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, now set aside. And, and we've got to figure out how to do that. And Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us really clearly, we'll get there. But here's the thing, and it's real easy to do. Sometimes people will confuse doing what God wants you to do with things that are supposed to help you know what God wants you to do. Like prayer, like communion, like Bible study, like fellowship, like small group, like giving, serving. And he says, you don't have to do any of those things anymore. And he's right. But if your heart's really changed, you ought to want to. Right? It's it's an expression of your love of God. So in Galatians 5, it says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for yourself. Right? That's that's not why we have it. We have it for others, for the world. Not for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you might say, well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said there's two that fulfill all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, guess what? Can you love your neighbor as yourself if you don't first love God? No. So that really is it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is it. That is the whole law of Christ. Now, again, William Barclay, um, who I just love, back in the 1950s um, at Glasgow in Scotland, he wrote these words. He says, dissension describes a society where the members fly apart instead of coming together. The tragedy of life is that people who hold different views very often finish up by disliking not each other's views, but each other. And it should be possible to differ with a man and yet remain friends. He wrote that in 1954. 1954. This issue's been around. That's not new. That's humanity. That's the way we are. We're still working at it, aren't we? Right? We're still working at it. And so the whole law is fulfilled when you obey the single command, love your neighbor as yourself. That, and that you may know this, but that wasn't new to Jesus. Jesus is simply quoting scripture. This is in Leviticus 19. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus is just quoting what his father had already given the people, given the law to carry until he came. So now you have this issue. You've got freedom, but you can't trust yourself, and the law doesn't work. So what do you do? Right? So look, you can't trust yourself, can you, to have enough willpower in every situation? For those of you over 16, you get this, right? Anybody ever been on a diet? 
Right? Anybody tried to work out? You're going to go running at 6 in the morning, although you never get up before 8. Right? Your willpower is not enough to get you there. Not in life, not in faith, not in anything. But then, there are the few. Right? The people that are just in amazing shape. They Somehow God gave them the gift of discipline that very other, few other people have. They're machines. They get up before dawn. They run 30 miles before lunch. And they you know, write two books in the meantime. How, I mean, these are just these kind of people. But the problem is, it never makes you loving. And sometimes it actually pushes you way, way out of relationship. Because you're more important about, it's more important to you about your results and achievement than it is the relationships with people around you. It actually drives you apart. So if it doesn't work over here to trust yourself and willpower, and it doesn't work over here as law because it makes you prideful or difficult to live with, what do you do? Well, Dallas Wheeler would write it this way. Um, I have a lot of respect for him. I was in one of his courses in my doctoral work, and he writes this. He says, use your will, your will, to rely on God. Don't trust your will. Use your will to rely on God, to trust God. Not willpower. It is trusting God with our will. That's where we want to be. Trusting God with our will. It is not about trying harder. Matter of fact, trying harder often will work in the opposite direction. The harder you try, the more frustrated you, you get, and sometimes you just give up. So the answer, he says, is to get out of God's way. And that takes some work, too. To really get out of God's way. What does God want to do? And then you to try to come alongside. Say, okay, God, what part of this do you want me to do? And sometimes God says, none of it. None of your business. Stay there. And sometimes God says, I want you to get involved over here. And we say things like, well, I don't know how to do that. It's like, I, I didn't ask you if you knew how to do it. I said, get over, over here. Right? So then we come to today in Galatians 6. And in the great words of Montel Jordan, this is how we do it. Right? <laughs> Thank you for those of you who get the reference. So this is how we do it. And it's important because it comes to specifics. Right? You can't love in general. You have to love the person in front of you. Because love in general is not love at all. That's a concept. It's a theory. And then somebody shows up. They need your help, need your love, need your attention. That's love. And you've got you to show up there. So this is how we do it. Specifics in the use of Christian freedom. You have freedom. Now we get to show up. How do we do it? Well, when we get here, Dallas Willard says there's three big mistakes about faith um, and trying to live into this. The first is that we think grace is opposed to effort, and it's not. It's opposed to earning. We think grace is opposed to effort. It's not. It's, it's opposed to earning. Grace is opposed to earning. You can't earn it. You can't get yourself to heaven. You just can't do it. But it does take our best efforts. Then secondly, we just talked about this, we think spiritual growth is achieved by trying harder. It's not. Spiritual growth happens by indirection. Indirection. It takes our effort. We can't earn it. And just trying harder doesn't make it better. Right? So there are certain things that, you know, have you, have you ever... Have you ever just tried hard, tried harder to be nicer? How does that work? People are like, why are you acting so weird? Because I'm trying to like you. <laughs> I mean, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. But if you actually submit or do a work of service, that relationship might get better. If you go and you have the discipline of giving, that relationship might get better. If you try the, the discipline of fasting... And, and, and you're fasting and you're not eating for a set period of time. 
And, 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 you know, it's not about going two hours longer than your sisters. You'd be like, see, I'm a better faster. That's, I mean, it's not worth doing. It's the opposite. But oftentimes what you'll find is if at the end of a fast, let's just say this is true for me, I don't know what God's going to do with that, but somehow, some way, I find that there's a blessing over here that I didn't even think about. This relationship is better. This thing where I was stuck was better. But it's not a one-to-one relationship. It worked by indirection. Same thing with prayer. A lot of times you, you will rarely, I would say, oftentimes, get whatever exactly you pray for. But you will have all kinds of other blessings that show up there even better. Because if God doesn't give you what you want, he'll give you something better. Because that's who God is. That's his character. God always wants what's best for you, even if you can't yet see it. And that can be hard to live into. But I, I take great comfort in that. And then finally, we think that grace without effort will do it. And it will not. It just won't. You have to participate. It's like power steering. God does God's part. You do your part. You have a part to play. So again, William Barclay, uh, back in the 50s, he would write, it takes deliberate effort with the help of God. It just does. It takes your deliberate effort with the help of God. Never to seek anything but the best, even for those who seek the worst for us. Man, isn't that true? If you're actually going to love and wish the best for people who wish you the worst... You're not doing that in your own strength. I mean, you, you need some God with you, right? Kirby John Caldwell used to say, you, you're going to need some super on your natural so it can be supernatural because that's where that stuff shows up. Now, as we get into this, you have to understand, though, the whole goal of all of this for Paul and for the Galatians and for the Christian church, remember, is unity. And so when you don't have unity, what's the goal? Restoration. And if the goal is restoration, then the path is gentleness. Right? So you're not trying to stay apart. You're not trying to prove who's better. What you're trying to do is be in relationship. It's restoration to God and one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that path requires gentleness. Fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness. It's really important we understand this. Because if we're going to restore things, we have to be gentle in doing that. And in Jesus' day, the word restore, you know, the root of restoration... It meant mending your nets. That's how they used it most often. Mending nets, bringing things together so that we can do the work that God's had for us to do all all along. Mending our nets, mending our relationships, getting along, doing the work needed to do that. Uh, Richard Hayes, um, who's a New Testament professor, I think uh, now emeritus at Duke, um, says this. My friends, if... Actually, I'm going to reference him in just a second. Um, In Galatians 6, it says this. My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore, right? Men, nets, such a one in a spirit of, say it with me, gentleness. Take care that yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Okay? So, underlying all these texts is Leviticus 19.17. You shall love your neighbor as yourself as 19.18. And so this, this comes right before it. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. Because you're, you're trying to keep you know, the community safe, your people safe. So the rebuke of the neighbor is an expression of loving the neighbor. It's not harsh. It's gentle and kind and wonderful like your grandma. It's like, honey, if you touch the stove again, that's going to burn you. Don't do that. Right? And we don't, we don't thank grandma bad for that. We thank her for that. And we have to figure out a way to do this with one another so that we can help people not harm themselves or others. 
with a spirit of gentleness. The practice of mutual correction then is fraught with dangers of prideful abuse. I'm better than you are. Get in line. And at the same time, that all of us share in a common human frailty. Oh, I'm not strong enough to talk to them about that. Otherwise, I'm going to be doing what they're doing with them. Whatever that thing is. Does it make sense? This is why teenage girls should never try to save an older bad boyfriend. You don't have the power, and it's going to end up badly. One of the two. Sorry, ladies. Just the way it is. Just you see it, right? You have to be smart about this stuff. You can't go in and try to take care of something in your own power because either one, you're going to be prideful about it and fall that way, or you're going to fall into it and fall that way. So Paul says, beware. Beware. So now, Richard Hayes says this. We may be most harshly condemning of those failings to which we ourselves are the most susceptible. Isn't that true? Verse 2 should be taken specifically in conjunction with verse 1. If the Galatians take on the responsibility for correcting one another in this way, they will be, in fact, bearing one another's burdens. Now, this is important, friends. If we're actually living in right relationship with each other, we are bearing one another's burdens all along. So, and what, do you, what does that mean? And this is, this is often misunderstood. So the second point about this that I want you to know is bearing one another's burdens is truly loving your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says, in that way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this is, is really surprising because Paul's been saying for five chapters, it's not the law, it's not the law, it's not the law. And all of a sudden, he says it's the law of Christ. Well, what in the world is the law of Christ if it's not the law? It's sacrificial love as represented on the cross, as represented in washing feet, and represented in his life's work of healing those who are blind, lame, or deaf. Now, this is, this is super important to understand this. Because in my life as a preacher's kid, growing up my whole life, if, if you're in a small town, everybody knows you're the preacher's kid. Even people who don't go to your church know you're the preacher's kid. You show up to school, you're the preacher's kid. And everybody knows that. And there's expectations with being a public figure um, when your parents are public figures. So now you're a public figure whether you want to be or not. It's not your choice. It just is. And I've always been amazed and disappointed that there's somebody out there that wants to take advantage of that. Because they know they can behave badly, and everybody's watching me to see how I respond. And I can't respond badly. I have to go help them or do whatever they want me to do. Otherwise, I'm not a good person because I'm not a good preacher's kid. Does this make sense to you? They take advantage of that. They, they push it. So this is what I need you to know. My wise friend, Jean Marie, says it like this. Refusing to self-govern and demanding empathy for it is emotional extortion. Own your life. Own it. Don't let people do that to you. If, if they are doing emotional extortion, let them go on by. That is not yours, right? They've got to figure out that that doesn't work or otherwise you're going to be in a really nasty relationship that's abusive and terrible. This, this, you've got to get this because people will say, no, no, in Galatians it says bear my burdens, bear one another's burdens. That's not the same as emotional extortion, right? If you're actually living together in community, you're going to know when somebody's hungry. You're going to know when somebody needs a ride to work. You're going to know those things bearing one another's burdens in a regular way. Not somebody from the outside going, oh, yeah, and I know I could do this for myself, but I want you to bear that burden. No. No. And then thirdly, on the other side of that, don't be arrogant. Mind your own business, right? And get your business done. Right? Again, back to sort of wisdom from grandparents. You know, don't, don't be arrogant. Just do your business. Do what I asked you to do, not what I asked your sister to do, and you get your stuff done. So in Galatians 6, Paul writes it this way. He says, For if those who are nothing think there's something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Own work, right? So when we have people come into membership, we talk about the fruits of the Spirit. You know what we always say? 
Check your own fruit. Don't check your spouse's fruit. They won't like it. Right? You check your own fruit. Then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own what? Do your work. Mind your business. Get your business done. Now, this is always uncomfortable, and I really want to skip it, but, but it's in the Scripture, so i got to tell you. And that is, those of us, like Brandon and I, and other people on your staff, who teach you how to live, teach you the Word, which is both the Scriptures and much more than that, you, Paul says you got to compensate us. Not just us, but everyone who does that work. And, and it's super important, because as God pours into you through the people who spend their entire life doing that, you take that, you then bring that to your business, you then get a raise, or you get a new position, you get things that you would never get if you were not a part of our community. And this happens all the time through connections and through teaching and through all that. Paul says, then you ought to compensate the people that told you how to do that in the first place. Now, I'm not, I'm not vying for a raise. We have an entire, um, you know, way that we do that we've got a finance committee we've got an spr committee that's voted on an ad council and charge conference it goes through four different things so you know brand and i actually don't have a lot to do with what we're compensated but scripture says it's important that we have a process for that and we do that's true in every church that it ought to be that way so uh, paul writes those who are taught the word must share in all the good things with their teacher as you benefit you need to share that with your community and that's why we always talk about tithing here we want to give at least 10% back to God through the church because we're just thankful. That's good stuff. So number five, then, Jesus forgives our sins, Paul writes, separation from him, the separation of that relationship, but rarely removes the consequences of our actions. As I was studying this, some scholars actually say does not remove the consequences of our actions. That God forgives your sin, Jesus forgives your sin, but not the consequences. My personal experience is that's not true. My personal experience is that sometimes I've done really stupid stuff. Anybody in here done some stupid stuff? And I didn't pay a consequence for it. Not that I could point to. If my mom knew how fast I drove her 62 Chevy, right, she would not be happy with me. And I didn't get a ticket for it. No consequence. Until she watches this online, then I'll have some consequences. (laughs) So... And you, you've done the same thing. You've made bad decisions, and somehow, some way, you were spared what you knew you should have had coming. Thank God for that. But never forget, friends, that just because God spares you here, and God spares you here, and God spares you here, there's no guarantee that you're not going to pay a terrible consequence when you do it the fourth or fifth time. Or maybe the first time. You never know. Right? You just don't know. And it's not, don't be mad at God when you pay the consequences for your own stupidity. It's not his fault. He, he tells us how to live. He tells us how to do the law of Christ. And the thing is, yes, does, does he help us out sometimes in ways we absolutely don't deserve? Yeah. But you can't bank on it. And it, it happens, I, rarely, really. Most of the time, you, you know, you sow, you reap what you sow. And that's what Paul says. He says, don't be deceived, friends. God is not mocked for you reap whatever you sow. You put wheat in the ground, wheat comes up. If you sow to your own flesh, right, all, all the things that are not God that you're trying to control, you will reap corruption from the flesh, from your own work. But if you sow to the Spirit, sow to God, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So, again, Richard Hayes says it this way. When Paul talks about the flesh, what he's talking about is all self-asserting activity that seeks security in anything other than the promise of God. 
right? Now, a lot of people take flesh and they'll try to boil it down to sexuality. It's much bigger than that. Much, much bigger than that. Everything, all self-asserting activity, think about that, all self-asserting activity that seeks security in anything other than God. Right? It's a very broad deal. Then Paul moves on and he tells you this. This is all in chapter 6, friends. All these things of how to live and how to know if you're living right, how to know if other people are living right. He says, keep doing the next right thing. And don't give up. Don't give up, friends. Keep going because Jesus is on his way. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and your grandma can't do it for you. That is yours. Nobody else can do that. One day, you will either go to God or God will come to you. I don't know when that is. Neither do you. Neither does anybody. But in that moment, nobody else can do that piece for you. It's your life, your choices. And, and hopefully you've got a lot of good stuff to say. And you get to be like, you know, God, when I was doing 120 over here and, and I didn't get a ticket, thank you. Right? You're in a conversation now, but it's not something somebody else can do for you. And Paul is making that clear. But that's, there's some good news here. I want you to see this. Richard Rohr, Father Rohr, um, who's a monk, um, says it like this. He's still alive. He's in his 80s. Really, I love his stuff. He says, gathering with the body of Christ is supposed to be a wedding feast, a party. Do you know how many times in the four gospels eternal life is described as a banquet, a feast, a party, a wedding, the marriage feast of the lamb? There are 15 different direct allusions to eternal life being a great big party. You know God's in favor of a good time? Yes. Thanksgiving, Christmas, family, friends. It's awesome. And then Father Rohr says, do you know how many parables there are? about eternal life being a courtroom or a judgment scene. What? It's 15 to 1, friends. Now, is this one super important? Oh, yeah, because it's Jesus in Matthew 25. I recommend it to you. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, you're going to be judged like this. Did you help the poor? Did you clothe the naked? Did you feed the hungry? And he says, if you did, you did it to me. If you didn't, you didn't do it to me. So Matthew 25 is super important because it makes very clear that the ultimate issue is about how we care for the poor and the marginalized. For many of us, the body of Christ is not a party. Instead, we often believe that heaven is a giant courtroom scene. The good people win. The bad people lose. And almost everybody's bad, except our group. And he says, that won't work. It doesn't work. It gives no joy, no hope to the world. Do we want to be a part of the wedding feast to which all are invited? Which we recount here every Sunday at Communion? The only people who don't get in on the party are those who don't want to come. So I guess we have to ask ourselves, do we want to come? It's all set. Enough food for everybody. Everybody's welcome. But then you notice who Jesus has set you between. And you have to decide. Am I going to the party? Am I going to forgive those people? Or am I going to stay out here away from the family of God? It's our choice, your choice. You're invited to the banquet, but you don't get to choose who you sit by. So you gotta, you got to see, is Jesus in charge or not? So Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing what's right. For we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. Don't give up. There's good news for you. Dallas Willard says this, always do the next right thing, always. Always do the next right thing you know to do because that is what God wants you to do. When people say, I don't know the will of God, yeah, you do. The next right thing, that's what God wants you to do. Nothing will drive you into the kingdom of God like trying to do the next right thing. This is super important, friends, because I, I watched this interview with Dallas, and they're like, what's the most important thing you could say to somebody coming to faith? He says, do the next right thing. Like, no, 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 it's prayer, right? He goes, no, prayer's supposed to let you know how to do the next right thing. 
He said, well, what about Bible study? Well, it's supposed to help you know what the next right thing is. Well, what about small group? Well, sometimes they're going to tell you what the next right thing is and help, and sometimes it'll be wrong, right? So all of these things are to help you do the next right thing because what God wants you to do, the will of God, is for you to do the next right thing. And if you've been, if you've been at that a while, like I have, it is hard sometimes. It's just hard sometimes because people won't understand it. They'll be mad at you for it. Just but do the next right thing. And the prayer and the Bible study and the small group and the fellowship and the fasting and, and, and all of that, it'll help confirm the next right thing or that you just did the next right thing. So at every opportunity, Paul writes, in your everyday life, work for the good of all people, all people, and especially the family of faith, particularly the people in your family of faith, the church. So then whenever we have an opportunity, Paul writes in 610, let us work for the good of all, right? And for the family of faith. Now, John Wesley, our founder, founder of the Wesleyan movement, he says it like this. He goes, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can and all the times you can, do all the people you can as long as ever you can. Sounds pretty serious about that. And he wants you, he wants you to get it. Like, get out there, do it. Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing as long as you can. As long as you have breath in your body, get after it. But then, why don't we do it? Well, Dallas would say, because our primary temptation is, if I do this thing or I don't do this thing, I'm going to miss out on something good. So we don't do it. Because we think something is better than what God's asking of us. And that can never be the case. Because only God knows what is truly good for you. So sometimes we say, oh, I would do that, but I can't because i got to do this other thing. Or God says, you know, don't do that. And we're like, well, well I have to because that's the only way I'm going to make it in my, my business. If I don't do that with the rest of them, I'm, I'm going to get passed on. You, you know how this works. That's our great temptation. So I want you to see the, the whole project. All of Galatians, Paul's argument is this. The whole project is nothing short of creating a new kind of people, not like the world, a new kind of people guided by the Holy Spirit who will become a blessing to the whole world for the very transformation of the whole world. That's what we're to be about. So Dr. Heath, she says that God is a missional God who calls forth a missional people in order to bring about the healing and salvation of the world, the entire world. God is always calling forth a people to participate in God's work of making all things new. That's our God, makes all things new. And so like the early church in the book of Acts chapter 2 where we get our name, like the folks in Galatia, like the folks in Ephesus, like the folks in Corinth, we are not the church of easy answers. Never have been. It's not easy because you've got to ask the question, what's the next right thing? You've got to work at that. It takes great effort. You can't earn it, but it takes great effort. And so we're not, you just can't be an easy answer. It's not like that. So around here, what do we do? We live into the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, communion in our homes, praying together, studying the scriptures with the best that we can, and showing up for each other in fellowship. So we too, like all the other Christians before us, we need to pray regularly, study diligently, and share gladly to discern what is life-giving or death-dealing. The early church called that consolation or desolation. And here might be the most important thing, thing of the whole deal. I would love to tell you, if you tell somebody this, they'll get it, and it's all going to be okay. It's not how it works. Edwin Freeman, who has done incredible sociological work, wrote a book, Generation to Generation, which many of you all know. He's written another book called The Failure of Nerve. And this is what I need you to know, because this is actually something that might help save us. 
as not like save us with Jesus, but like really save the world and the fighting that's going on. He says, the colossal misunderstanding of our time is the assumption that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. It doesn't. You can tell them the exact truth and it won't make a lick of difference if they're not motivated to change. If you want to change your child, if you want your child to spouse, client, or boss to shape up, then you have to stay connected while changing who? Yourself. Rather than trying to fix them. Have you ever had somebody try to fix you? Did you like it? No, nobody likes that. However, have you ever seen somebody be transformed in front of your eyes? That they're just so filled with love and grace. They used to be one way, now they're another way. The only thing you even have a hope of is changing yourself with the power of Christ. You don't have other control, right? We're lucky when we have self-control. So this, this is really important, friends, because over and over in our, in our society, particularly in the last five, ten years, people are just throwing out information and expecting people to change. It doesn't work. You have to be willing to do the hard work yourself and change before them, to serve them, to wash their feet, to do self-sacrificial love. That is the law of Christ. That's the only way stuff gets better. So this is how you live it out. Action steps are these. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. Show up to God, yourself, your neighbors, your world. Showing up's half the battle. You've got to show up. Secondly, when you're there, pay attention to what's going on inside of you and outside. Read the room. Know what's going on. And then as God leads you, cooperate with God as God invites you, instructs you, corrects you, encourages you in the situation at hand. Whatever that is, be obedient. Now, all kinds of beautiful things come out of that. And then finally, release the outcome to Jesus. Consciously let go of the result. Recognizing that God is God and we are what? Not. It's not ours. The church is not ours. The church belongs to God. The church belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so again, Richard Hayes says this, Galatians is a daring call to cultivate a community of flexibility and freedom. It is a radical and inspiring vision. The church at its best has been willing to take the gamble that Paul recommends, wagering its entire future, friends, on the guidance of the Holy Spirit, trusting God and performing, this is my favorite part, without a safety net. Without a safety net. Trusting God with the next step. And there are many of you here today that have been with me more than 15 years. When we were still at Shine Middle School, and we, we didn't even have the land paid off. We didn't have enough money to build the first building. And, and you're, you're, we're going without a safety net. We had like 40 families when we built the first building. We had to double the budget in less than six weeks to survive. We were either going to make it or we were going to go under in 2006. And everybody knew it. But the Holy Spirit said, build. Now. We're like, we can't do that. We're like, well, we'll see what happens. Without a safety net. And we cannot give that up. We must remain faithful to letting the Holy Spirit guide us and bless us by changing ourselves as God calls and wills for the very transformation of the world. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.